0: Well, good morning, Travis family. I wanna invite you to open up to the book of Acts and we are gonna continue right along with our series. Uh, we are in chapter two and uh, we are in in what I believe is uh, perhaps one of the most important passages um, in the New Testament, because it has far reaching implications into how we are to conduct ourselves in God's house and the posture in which uh, we, we are to live in. Um, my youngest daughter, Lucy, uh, she has a, a morning ritual every morning that she wakes up. We, uh, we put her to bed uh, in, in PJs, so she'll go to bed in her PJs, but she magically, every morning, she wakes up in a princess dress. And this happens every single day in the life of of our home. Uh, In fact, this morning uh, I'd asked Haley, I said, uh, hey, would you uh, send me a picture of Lucy right now? Uh, Just take a picture of her. I wanna show you this picture, Of of Lucy, this is. uh, We put her to bed, and uh, yes, we wear Christmas PJs when we go to bed in the middle of May. Uh, We put her to bed with that, and she magically woke up with this that dress on that you see, uh, and these these sunglasses. Because if you notice those sunglasses in particular, uh, they're Mickey Mouse oriented uh, Disney World sunglasses. Um, Lucy loves to pretend that she is a princess. And that's partly my fault. Uh, that's mostly her mom's fault. But, uh, but Lucy believes with every fiber in her being that, that she's a princess. Now, the question is, where do you take someone who wants to be a princess? You, you take them uh, to Disney World. Like this is where you go because the promise of Disney World is this, it is a place where dreams come true. And so you take your children, you have to uh, cash out a little bit of your retirement account, uh, g- cash in a dividend uh, from some stocks if you had a good year to pay for it. But, but when you go, the, the whole idea is that they exist to make dreams come true, specifically little girls that want to be princesses. And it ingrains in them this, this attitude. And so you go, and, and I will say, they do deliver on that promise. Well, you know, it's one thing for a dad to deliver on a promise to make their daughter uh, feel a certain way uh, and and to lead them in a certain way. It's quite another for us to understand that God, many years ago, makes a promise to the church. And it's a promise that is gonna have far-reaching implications um, with the gospel and how the church is supposed to look, specifically talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit when he comes. We have this uh, context in Acts 2, where the church has been told, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has told the church, the disciples, the apostles to stay put in Jerusalem until the spirit of God comes upon them. And so this is where we find uh, the people of God at this moment, they're waiting. They're waiting for God to fulfill the promise that he foretold years ago, but also the promise that he just spoke about several weeks prior to this. And I wanna pick up in chapter two, with the text where we begin reading where he says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, this word Pentecost, it is a uh, sort of the culmination of the Passover feast. Uh, Pentecost, it, it literally means uh, the 50th. Um, and, and it's this idea that at the end of Passover, the, the people of God, the Jewish people in particular, were going to gather together and they were going to feast. And Pentecost would have happened uh, about the beginning of June. If we know that Passover starts sometime around mid-April, which is traditionally around the time in which we celebrate Easter, and then Pentecost would have come 50th, uh, 40, 50 days later, and they would have celebrated this feast. And, and what they would have done is they would have gathered some local wheat. They would have gathered, baked some bread, and they would have feasted, reminding them um, of a couple of things. One, to remind them that the first fruits of every offering were to be given towards the Lord. We see this sentiment and in these instructions given in Leviticus 23, 17 where God's word says, offer these first fruits to the Lord. Now, this is interesting because one of the things that we see next week in response to Pentecost and the spirit of God coming upon his people is we see Peter preach this incredible sermon and we see the very first fruits of thousands upon thousands that get saved. People that are far from God come to know Christ because of the message that Peter preaches. And so the irony here is is not meant for us to look past. In fact, we're meant to recognize this to a degree. But it was also given Pentecost because it was meant to remind the people of God in this moment of when God in particular gave the law to Moses for the benefit of the people. And the irony here in this moment is that now as this new age, the church age is, is ushered in where God's spirit is now filling believers up and that we are commanded to to be full of the spirit and to walk with the spirit and to listen to the spirit. That we no longer um, have the law hanging over our heads because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law and now he is our standard and and he's called us to an even higher standard than the law had actually called us to. We have been called to emulate Jesus. But we're not called to do that in our own power. Rather, we're called to do that in being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, if there is one promise that that I desire to see in the life of our church fulfilled, it's the desire to see Travis walking in a posture that is full of the Spirit of God. Now I know that, that the idea of being full of the Spirit, it has numerous meanings depending on what denomination you come from or even your background. And, and in some cases, uh, being full of the Spirit has, has really been misused and misappropriated in Scripture. But, but before we get to that, I just want to say this to my, my Baptist friends here, that I think that one of the, the missing ingredients in, in most churches today, particularly Baptists, is for whatever reason, we have become fearful of talking about the Holy Spirit and how he works and and how he moves and and our understandings of him. And I think some of that has to do with a reaction that we've seen on the other side where we've seen um, abuses of the Spirit. And so for whatever reason, we, we are uh, a little bit afraid. And, and the way that I would like to characterize myself is that um, I'm, I would consider myself a little bit more of a charismatic except that I like to wear my seatbelts and I wanna trust God, but I wanna be completely dependent upon the spirit of God. And I want to assure you that even as we begin talking about the Spirit today and that we'll see Him working uh, in powerful ways throughout the book of Acts, um, this doesn't mean that, that we at Travis uh, should or we will uh, create what I would just call like the tambourine aisles where, where pretty soon we're going to have folks um, running up and down the aisles, waving flags and, and beating on tambourines. Um, we're not going to start calling um, our pastors apostles. We're, we're not going to start putting uh, flames of fire on our walls to represent the fire of God and, and Pentecost dwelling. No, rather we're going to look at some other scriptures that, that I think uh, in, a, in a much deeper and meaningful way illustrate what it means to be full of the Spirit of God. But the text in chapter 2 says that when this day finally came, and the people of God were, were gathered there together. They arrived together in one place. And then notice what it says in verse 2. That suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Literally, if you were to to flesh this out in the Greek in a in a very wooden, in a very literal way, it could be translated as this this echoing sound as a mighty wind that was birthed or born violently. And so what this is, is this is not a picture of uh, this calm, gentle breeze that, that blows through. It's, it's really this picture of, of almost like uh, a tornado that has come through with great power. I remember uh, growing up and going over to my grandparents' house. We called them Mimi and, and Papa. And, and I have a lot of fond memories about there. But one of the things I always remember is the strangest thing is I always remember looking out on their back porch and listening to the wind chime that they had on their back porch. And those wind chimes would make just incredible sounds when that breeze was gentle and when it was calm. But when that wind picked up, those wind chimes sort of lost their focus and they lost their touch. And this was not a place where in this moment where you would have this gentle breeze blowing through and it would be this sort of serene moment. No, um, in the text, it, it's meant to illustrate this idea or connote this idea of this violent wind that comes through loud and, and, and almost thunderous. And it rushes in and it says that it fills the house where they were sitting. It begins to, to almost in one sense begin to, to overwhelm them. And, and, and it is apparent that something, something new is happening. Something new is beginning. You know, in the Old Testament, it, it talks about the spirit of God and, and it uses different terms. In the Hebrew, it uses a word called ruha. In the Greek, we, we translate it out or it's, or it's used the word pneuma that many of you perhaps are familiar with. But in the book of Ezekiel, we we see a promise that is given in Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel is is talking about this day when the Spirit of God is going to descend upon his people and he's going to make the dry bones someday live again. And we see in Ezekiel 37 verses 9 and 10 where he says this, he says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain. So that, what? So that they may live and they then came to life and they stood on their feet and it was this vast army. You see, Ezekiel was talking about a promise that was gonna come. And what we see is that promise being fulfilled specifically in this moment at Pentecost where God's spirit comes as promised, a reminder to his people that God never forsakes his word and he never backs out of a promise. And this rushing, violent wind comes in and it fills the entire house where they were sitting. Now, I've, I've read Acts 1 and 2 and I've read the book of Acts numerous times. But one of the reasons why I love just walking through scripture over and over again is because each time that I do it, I, I learn something a little bit new and, and maybe a little bit different. And one of the things that I've never seen before in the text was really in noticing the posture at the end of verse two. So the question is why would Luke make a statement where he says this wind fills the entire house and notice the posture in which the people of God were at in which they were waiting, they, they were sitting. There are some that, that would use Acts two as a, as a proof text, if you will to talk about how the people of God were praying and they were praying and they were seeking after God until God, they, they reached this level of holiness and then all of a sudden God would, would come and, and they would receive this baptism by fire or, or they would receive this filling of the Holy Spirit. But one of the things that I think that Luke is doing for us in telling us the posture of the people, that we can't miss this because normally the posture of, of people during this time, if they were praying, they would not be sitting, for you didn't sit and pray during these times. You sat because you were relaxed. You, you were, in essence, you were, you were sort of hanging out. You, you were just being you and, and doing what you do. But when they prayed, they would be in one of two positions. They would stand to pray, or they would prostrate themselves on their knees and on their faces and cry out before the living God. I think this is one of the things that have that have been amiss oftentimes in, in super contemporary churches where I appreciate oftentimes about traditional churches and this idea of, of we stand when we pray. It doesn't mean we have to stand every single time, but what it does is it, is it brings us to this place of respect. Like, like when somebody that you're going to show honor to in a room walks in, if you were just to sit down, in some cases it would show um, great disrespect to that person so you stand to honor that individual and to acknowledge that they've entered into the room and and it's a show and a sign of respect. But here we have the people of God, they're they're sitting and the spirit of God, the, the, the spirit of God descends upon them. And then I want you to notice what happens. It says that divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, a couple of things about this. One, We see throughout scripture how often God will appear to his people in the form of fire. It says in the book of Hebrews that that our God is a a consuming fire. It's it's stated throughout the the Old Testament. This is the case when God appeared to Moses. He appeared in the form of a fire in in a burning bush. And so this is typical, when God shows up, they're they're in the form, in some way, in some fashion, there is this this fire and this metaphor that that he speaks, and so he uses this language as divided tongues as a fire to, to illustrate this point, that the third person of the triune God has now entered into the picture, and he's the fulfillment of all that's been promised prior to this. And it says that that this divided tongue, he he begins to speak and rest upon them. And they were all, then what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says that they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. Now in the text, he uses the word glossa. G-L-O-S-S-A is how you would phonetically write it out. It's the word for tongue meaning Language. Meaning a known dialect that was spoken. In this moment in Acts 2, there there was no intelligible language that no one understood. There was no gibberish in any way in Acts 2. But rather, this was a language that that was a spoken language that all of a sudden they were able to speak in and they were begin to understand. They began to understand one another. And we'll see in the text how, how this sort of unfolds. But I want us to ask the question before we go any further, is that when he says they were filled with the Holy Spirit, the question comes up, well, what exactly does that mean? Because if we're to follow in the footsteps of Acts 2, some might infer and some have inferred that to be filled with the Holy Spirit means that I then solely or exclusively or even primarily that I have the gift of speaking in tongues. And friend, I I wanna remind us that one of the first two or three principles of just good hermeneutics in understanding scripture is that we are meant to interpret difficult passages of scripture first and foremost with a posture of humility, but secondly, we interpret scripture with scripture, meaning that we allow other scriptures to inform our understanding of difficult texts at times. And so where do we go to help understand this? I think that perhaps the, the most important place to go to, to understand Acts 2 that gives it meaning is actually Ephesians chapter five. You see, later on in, in the book of Acts in, in this chapter in particular, If you were to go down um, all the way to the end, um, it it describes these guys in verse 13 as they begin to speak in these different languages. In verse 13, he says, but others began mocking them, saying that they must be filled with new wine. In other words, um, this is so peculiar to an outside world that is looking in at the church. They go, these guys must be drunk and inebriated. And so Paul, in his wisdom, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes in Ephesians 5, And I want you to to read with me and follow along with me where he says this in, in Ephesians 5, verse 18. He says, listen, do not get drunk with wine. You see the parallels that exist there. For that is debauchery, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if we go back and look at Acts chapter four, he says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Ephesians 5 then goes on to illustrate, well, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I'm glad you asked. In verse 19 of Ephesians 5, he says this that when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what that looks like in the context of the local church. You are to address one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always. And for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Friend, I think the, the primary intended meaning of being filled with the Spirit of God is that we would then, in response to that, be a people filled with the spirit, that it increases our longing and our desire not to receive a gift as if we have uh, achieved some level of holiness or achieved some level of spirituality, but rather that we would be a people that would do what Ephesians 5 says, that we would read and that we would teach God's word and we would worship God in light of that truth. God reveals and his people responds. Like this is what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit is that our longing is not to achieve some kind of gift. Our ultimate desire is not to achieve some kind of of higher understanding of enlightenment, pursuing wisdom just to be wise, but rather that our goal is to pursue the person of Jesus as he has been revealed in the scriptures. For this is the instruction that God has given in Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit. Address one another in Psalms with spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart. And then don't forget in verse 20 that one of the characteristics of a person full of the Spirit of God is that they are a person that is walking around in a posture of gratitude. They are grateful people. And the joy that comes with gratitude is seen and felt and known by all. They're not victims. They don't feel like they're owed something. They're just simply glad to be in the presence of God and his word. And there is great joy and thankfulness and gratitude that is being expressed. Speaking in languages, is not the normal response to being filled with the spirit, but rather more normal is what's found in Ephesians chapter five is more appropriate. But if we continue to, to move on, if we, we get to verse five and, and, and notice back in Acts two, he says this. So, so these things happen, but notice what happened then through the apostles. So they were dwelling in Jerusalem, these Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, notice what happens. The multitude came together and it says, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them, not speaking in an unintelligible language, but rather speaking in his own language. They were able to understand. And it says they were amazed. They were astonished and saying, are not these who were speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear <coughs> each of us in his own native language? Listen, um, one one uh, pastor illustrated it this way. He said, this would have been so amazing. It would have been equivalent if you would have had, uh, remember the guys from Duck Dynasty way back in the day when, when that was a cool show and a popular show when it just came out? One of my favorite characters uh, in the entirety of that family, which by the way, uh, growing up in East Texas, I was like, these are my people. Like I understand these guys 100%. But my favorite guy on that show Show, bar none was Uncle Si. Because I think everybody needs an uncle in their family that just says whatever comes to their mind and just simply expresses it with no filter. Like everybody should have that kind of uncle. And it's cool that, that he wears camo and uh, is always drinking uh, sweet tea. That's, that's pretty awesome and remarkable as well. But the illustration here is this, is that it would be as if Uncle Si stands up and he begins to speak in a dialect that's not his own. He begins to speak before people that, that are rhetoricians and that are eloquent, that they were able to understand him. Um, part of the allure of Duck Dynasty was that they were, our culture was infatuated with it because people were like, people really live like this. What are they saying? I can barely understand them. But here in this moment, they speak in their language and it says these people were amazed and they were astonished and and they speak in these things. It goes on in verse 9 and it lists all of these groups of people that were listening and just sort of were smitten by what was happening. We hear them at the end of verse 11 telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So the purpose of, of God doing these things was to point people ultimately to the gospel and all of these tribes and nations and tongues that gathered around, they were amazed and perplexed saying, what do these things mean? We need someone to explain it to us. And I wanna draw out a couple of things as we conclude our time this morning. I find it interesting that that Luke begins to detail all of the people that, that gather together to listen. And you, and you ask yourself the question, why would Luke uh, go into such detail to illustrate the, the variety and the diversity that exists here when the Spirit of God comes upon his people? And, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is to remind us today, for me to remind you, that the gospel of Jesus is a gospel that is intended to reach the nations with the message. That we must be a a church for our city, but we must also be a church who has a heart that is cultivated for those that are far from him in the uttermost parts of the world. And so this is why we give. This is why we go. This is why we pray. This is why we sin. This is why we cry out for God to raise up people in our church. And let me tell you something, church. I'm getting really excited and I'm anxious to get back because we've been working behind the scenes. I had a, a great meeting this past week with uh, one of our elders, Terry McCoy, and we're working on a plan that we're gonna bring to the rest of the elders and hopefully to bring to the rest of the church about a, about a robust, um, detailed mission strategy that, that involves our city with, with great particulars, but also we wanna make sure that we remain in the future a church that is committed to the Great Commission, that is committed to the the larger purposes of God and his kingdom, that we are able to send out and to start churches, not just here in Texas, but all around the world and to partner with those who are doing likewise. I believe that he is reminding us that the gospel is for the nations. The Revelation 7, every tribe, nation and tongue gathers before the risen lamb and bows before his feet in worship. But I think the second reason is this, is he gives this descriptors of all these people to remind us that God is glorified when his people walk in unity amongst diversity. But I believe with all my heart that God's kingdom is a diverse kingdom. I believe with with all my heart that that God's kingdom is is not just fair-skinned, red-bearded, blue-eyed uh, Big headed uh, Irishman ancestry, short guys like myself. I believe that it's a, a diverse kingdom that is made up of every tribe, nation, and tongue, and, and that God is most glorified when his people practice a posture and a position of unity under the influence of the Spirit of God. Don't miss that. I want to end this morning with, with this statement or this question. And I want it to be something that you ask yourself individually because it's something that I ask myself collectively for us as a church. If the Holy Spirit of God left the church today, 99% of, of what we do would go on and no one would see a difference. But if the Holy Spirit left the New Testament church in in this moment and and just walked away, 99% of what they did, it would stop and everybody would know the difference. And so the application there is this, not just for our church as a whole, but for you individually, for me personally. If the Holy Spirit left my life and he walked away, would anybody know any difference? Would I be any different? Or am I living too much like the world and and behaving too much like the world? Or rather, am I I living in a place of of being filled with the Spirit of God that people see the Spirit at work in my life and they see the, the hymns and the songs and the Word of God that just rolls out of my mouth as I interact and as I talk. They see something different in me. Friend, what will they see different in you that points them to Jesus? Acts 2 is a promise fulfilled. God has fulfilled his promise. God is still fulfilling his promises to us. And now we must roll our sleeves up and put our boots on and go out into the fields and go get them. This week, I'm, I'm praying for you as your pastor that God would bring people in your path that are far from him, that God would use you to share a testimony of God's faithfulness, to share a testimony of God's mighty works, to to proclaim the goodness and and the riches of the kingdom of God, and that we can experience and know God today. If you're watching this and you don't know Christ, we would love to connect with you and, and speak to you about what a personal relationship with him looks like. And you can reach out in this comment thread or below or, or you can access it through the website. We would love to visit with you about what a personal relationship with Jesus means. We wanna say thanks for being a part of this, this time. And we wanna say how eager we are to see you again on campus for those that are returning with us on June the 7th. As one of your elders, I speak for all of our elders and that we love you so deeply and we cannot wait to gather with you once again. God bless you.